0: Come <smart noise> on.
1: Twenty-five years ago, on today's date, May 6, 1993, the bodies of James Michael Moore, Christopher Mark Byers, and Stevie Edward Branch were discovered by police officers submerged in a muddy creek, nude and bound. Today's episode of Truth and Justice... And this entire season of Truth and Justice is all about honoring these victims and seeking justice for them. Michael Moore was born on July 27, 1984. At the time of his murder, he was eight years old. He was a second grade student at Weaver Elementary School in West Memphis, Arkansas. He lived with his parents, Todd and Dana Moore, and his sister Dawn Michael was known to be a very energetic and adventurous young boy he was a leader and not a follower Michael loved the Cub Scouts shortly before his death he had earned his wolf badge and on the day of his murder he went home after school and changed into his Cub Scout uniform had he not been murdered 25 years ago today Michael would have been 33 years old as we move on and move forward with our work and investigation into this case, let us never lose track that his name was Michael Moore. Chris Byers was born on June 23rd, 1984. Chris had a huge heart. He was lovable and energetic, and his nickname amongst his family was worm due to his hyperactivity Chris lived with his mother Melissa Byers and his adoptive father John Mark Byers also living with him was his 13 year old brother Ryan Clark amongst all of the relationships of all of these families of these victims the bond between Ryan and Chris seems to have been the strongest Chris loved his brother to no end and Ryan loved Chris just the same A few months ago, I had the honor and privilege of spending an entire afternoon with Ryan Clark, and he described to me the last time that he saw his brother. On the morning of May 5th, 1993, while Ryan sat in the living room, Chris ran out the front door and yelled back to him, Bye, Ryan. I love you. This is the type of person that Christopher Byers would have grown to be, a kind and caring young man. Ryan struggled through telling me the story as he described the sound of the bells that hung on their front door jingling as he watched his brother walk out for the very last time. Had Christopher not been murdered on the night of May 5th, 1993, he would be 33 years old today. And as we move along with our work, Let us never forget, his name was Christopher Byers. Stevie Branch was born on November 26, 1984. Stevie was a joy to everyone that he ever came into contact with. He was known by his bright, blonde, spiky hair and an amazing smile that never seemed to wipe from his face stevie lived with his mother pam hobbs and his stepfather terry hobbs he also lived with his four-year-old little sister amanda stevie's father's name was steve branch senior stevie loved karate and the ninja turtles he had a pet dog named king and a pet turtle he was an honor student at weaver elementary school and like michael and christopher stevie had also earned his wolf badge in the cub scouts His murder sent a ripple effect of destruction throughout his entire family. It practically destroyed his mother, Pam, which affected his sister, Amanda. And his death continues to haunt their family, even to this day. Had he not been murdered on May 5th, 1993, Stevie Branch would also have been 33 years old today. And again, as we continue forward with our work, let us never forget, his name was Stevie Branch. For most of us, today is just another Sunday. After you're done listening to this episode, you'll continue about your day. And before we get into the content of today's episode, I would like to ask that all of us take a moment of silence to remember Stevie Branch, Michael Moore, and Christopher Byers. As heartbreaking as it is to remember the forgotten three, we must continue on with our work. I wanna take this moment to make sure that all of you, every one of you understands that our purpose, our mission is and always has been justice for Stevie, Michael and Christopher. As we've done for the past several months and we will continue on today and in the future We will continue to investigate the case, to seek the truth, and to seek justice. Many of us will disagree, and many of us already have. But my hope is that all of us are coming from the same point of passion, a desire to honor these three little boys and make sure that the person or persons who tragically ended their lives at only eight years old is brought to justice. Many believe that justice has already been served in this case, and many believe that it has not. But what I can promise you today is that the only agenda of the Truth and Justice podcast is to find the truth and bring justice for the victims. For Stevie, Michael, and Christopher. As we move forward with the rest of today's episode, we're going to bring Tim Clementi back onto the show to give his professional and expert analysis of the interviews of Jesse Kelly. Mike and I put a lot of thought as to what we should do today and ultimately what we decided that the best way to honor the forgotten three is to continue to search for the truth. And that is why Tim Clemente is here today, right after the break.
2: even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BDW. report We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
1: Okay, Tim, thank you so much for joining us again. And I know you've had a chance to review Jesse's initial interview and then the follow-up clarification uh, and then you, you told me off the air that you also re- even reviewed a follow-up confession that Jesse gave after he was convicted. So let's go ahead and get started with the initial interview, uh, and and we'll we'll try to get your take on that if you can break it down. I know that you're not really familiar with the case and know about any factual errors in there, which was kind of the point. Um, so you not knowing what actually happened in the case. Um, I'd like to hear your thoughts on, on just the, the, the practices of the interview and what your takeaway was from it procedurally.
3: Yeah, from, uh, from a couple different standpoints, it's, it's really perplexing. First off, I would say that the, the beginning, the initial phase of the interview was very professionally done, obviously stating the time and place and who's in the room and the reason for the interview and everything else was done according to book. I mean, that's exactly as it should be done. But then, um, at some point in time, it seems like, it sure seems like Jesse is fairly dim-witted. Um, I don't know. Uh, I know they said that they did some kind of a psychological evaluation prior to the interview. Uh, I believe that was on the second one where they said that. And I'm not sure what the findings were as far as IQ level or anything, uh, because it seems like he sure is prompted a lot by the detectives that are interviewing him. And some of that may be poor interview and interrogation techniques where you're asking leading questions, but some of that also may be a result of the fact that they say at the beginning of that interview that they've already spoken to him and uncovered some things that now they want to get his statement on. So it may be that he said things that weren't recorded in an initial interview that they wanted to go back over. And then as they're going back over in that first recorded interview, it seems like Jesse just isn't doing real well, so they're helping him. As far as as far as far the facts of the case, I am totally ignorant on what the actual physical evidence found. Uh, so I can only go by what I hear in the interview. And what I hear in the interview is it seems like Jesse gives a little bit more detail every time he's prompted and every time he's led with a little more information. And some of the things that change very dramatically are things like the time of day. Okay. Initially, he talks about getting that first phone call at 9 o'clock in the morning. Uh, the detectives are clearly confused by this because they're looking for a much later timeline, obviously. And he says something about the kids skipping school, which uh, apparently doesn't jive with reality, uh, based solely on how the detectives handle that. And then in the follow-on interview the timeline has completely changed to later in the day.
1: So let, let's talk about the the timeline for a minute. You obviously picked up on the fact that the detectives wanted that timeline pushed further back. Uh, is that something that you, you think that could have been a mistake on Jesse's part, that he was confused, or, or what was your take on, on that shift from 9 in the morning all the way to 7 o'clock at night?
3: Well, initially I was thinking, boy, they're really pushing this to try and fit this square peg in a round hole. But then as I listen more, it seems like one of the things that's happening is Jesse is trying to reduce his own involvement. He's trying to direct everything on the other two guys and not on himself. And That's that's understandable. It happens all the time. Uh, defendants generally, when they're part of a conspiracy, want to reduce uh, the, the implication of themselves in that conspiracy. So he starts to give a little more information later about himself, and I think what may have been the case at this point in time is that as slow as he appears to be, he might have been thinking of this morning when he talks about him calling me at 9 o'clock in the morning and him going right over, He said, because he's confused in his own statement. He says, I told him, I I told Jason I couldn't go because I had to work, and then I went, and it's... It's like, then you went where, to work, or you went and met with them? And then he continues the story as if he went directly to meet with them. So it may be that, you know, you got to understand that in this situation, it's extremely stressful. Here you are, implicated in in three capital murders and a score of other crimes related to that. And uh, even if he's very slow and not comprehending everything, he's got to be comprehending the seriousness of where he is right now. And so it's understandable that the nervousness would be there and the, and the, uh, you know, the jitters trying to recall things. And you're under pressure. You're, you're hit, sitting here across the table from the authorities that have the ability to raise their thumb and let you walk free or turn their thumb down and put you away forever. So the weight of that certainly is, is being borne by him. And that's part of the reason why he might be confused. There's also just. His confusion in general. So, I, I, you know, I I can't say definitively that he's making this all up and he's not part of this because it sure seemed like there were aspects of that story that sounded very real. When he's talking about running away and going home and them wanting to know why he left and him talking about throwing up because of what he saw. You know, that, that part seemed fairly real to me. So, uh, there may be aspects that he was either covering up for himself or maybe fabricating.
1: Can you can you kind of break down how I thought a little differently? Of course, I know a little bit more about you know the the facts of the case, but that was a huge red flag to me. Confusing uh, the the time of day, you know, we we weren't talking about looking at a watch, and it was you know it was four o'clock and not three o'clock that it shifted from you know early in the morning till by the time he's done. It was getting dark when the kids went into the woods, uh, and, and then and then going, you know, I I'd kind of broken down. You know, there were 340 questions the police asked him, and uh-huh. 211 of them were yes or no. And so I was looking for you know what information is coming from him and what information is coming from the police. So, example the the time that we're just talking about, you know, you heard, you know, he says it's morning, and then and then the detective Ridge continually keeps saying that night the, the night when you guys were yeah, in the woods yep
3: yeah i cl- clearly picked up on that and that's very leading but it again we don't we don't have the vantage point of having heard his initial interview when he's first brought in because they say we've already talked to you and there were some things that were developed that we want to explore now so we don't know what he said initially and you know that's that would be the probably the most important interview but again Based on the intellect of, of Jesse, it would not be out of the ordinary for him to be com- completely confused on, on timelines. Did I go to work that day or didn't I? You know, maybe they called him right when he got off work and he's thinking it was first thing in the morning. Maybe he was taking a nap. I, I don't know. But there's a lot of things that could cloud that memory because it's either first thing in the morning or it's first thing after work. It's one of those two things, apparently. That's true, if this is at all a true story. So for him to confuse those things, Bob, I don't think you or I would confuse that kind of a detail if we had to recall it, some major incident, like what time of the day did the 9-11 attacks happen? Mm -hmm. There's not a lot of people in the world that wouldn't be able to tell very close to the hour of the day because it was a vivid memory for virtually all of us. Where were you when you first heard about it? You know, I I can recall that in explicit detail. This is a horrific incident that if it's true, if he was a part of it, made him run away and puke. And I've never experienced that in my life. I mean, I've been on grisly murder scenes. I've been on mass bombing scenes where there are hundreds of scattered bodies and pieces of bodies. And I've never been in a situation where I got sick, that it upset me so much that I vomited. Um, So so the way he's telling that story, first of all, it it would it's it's a little bit of a um, a reveal and an embarrassment to say, you know, I threw up, I, I because of what they were doing, it made me throw up, you know, I got sick, and so that detail, that in and of itself, I if I were making up that story, I would not have put that detail in, because it wouldn't appear to me that I would throw up in that situation. Because I've never been in anything like it, so what is it? You know, could it be that they tortured and killed animals before in these rituals that they talk about? And he threw up after one of those, and he's recalling that. I, that's possible, I guess. But it's a it's a very vivid detail that to me uh, rings true. We're talking about
1: details. Did you one of, one of the big questions that uh, that I've been posing to people after this interview, and I'm curious as to your take on it, is did you pick up on any? any actual information about the crime that came from Jesse and not the detectives?
3: Uh, The the part about them raping and sodomizing the boys came from Jesse because he says, he says it right away. He started to screw with them.
1: Right. Yep. The
3: detective digs in a little more on that. And then, uh, you know, they're asking him if he knows what a penis is and, and what, what they were doing. And he, He repeats over and over and over again about the two specific boys out of the three and what the two other guys did to them. What he saw, what he didn't see, what he thinks they did, what they did after he left, you know, all of that. But, uh, the the sodomizing and the raping, it seems like that was, uh, something he brought up that they did not drag out of it. Right. Detail out of him, but but he gave that up. And i again, I don't know if the physical evidence, the, the status of the bodies, uh, corroborates uh, the way he's describing things.
1: Right. Well, I, and so so now that you've already analyzed it and you picked up on that, I actually have in my notes the the single piece of the single detail that he described himself was the sodomizing, and that was one of the bigger conflicts with me because. None of the boy, the, the medical examiner, the medical evidence proved that none of the boys were sodomized. Okay. So how does that, I mean, does does that affect things with you, if you knowing that, yeah. that, that that's a factual error?
3: Yeah, if it is a factual error or if it's conclusive that there was no attempt and, and nothing was ever done to them. Now, were they or were they not found naked?
1: They were found naked.
3: Okay, and had they been in the water or were they found in the water?
1: They were found in the water.
3: Okay. So that was something that, that, uh, that was at the end of the, uh, last interview where there was more information on that. But the, the sodomizing, you know, disgusting as it is, uh, listening to that, trying to comprehend how that physically took place, it's, it would be a tough act to carry out under those circumstances, I think.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: So I would, I would imagine there would be, if they had, Attempted penetration in any way, there would be some kind of physical marking, some kind of physical scarring left by that. Mm-hmm. So that's clearly a conflict between what he's saying, and again, he volunteered that they didn't. Now you saying there was no, there was no anal penetration, no oral penetration, nothing.
1: Well, there many- we there was no anal penetration, uh, okay. oral. There was the. The police theorized that there was oral sex, uh, that they were forced to perform oral sex. And then, and it's also, I, I wanted to make sure you, you realize going into this interview, just so I can get kind of your take on how the, inter- how that information came about. Mm-hmm. The media was reporting that the boys were raped and sexually mutilated when they were killed. So for the month prior to this interview, the media said they were raped. The police actually at this time had not received the autopsy reports yet, a month later, and the police were working on a theory that the boys were raped, and it wasn't okay. a ter- figured out until much later that they were actually not not anally raped.
3: But there may have been oral sodomy?
1: Well, there's no evidence. So it, it, jump into the end of the clarification interview, um, and I'd love to hear your take on that too, where you know the very end of it was Uh, Inspector Gitchell getting Jesse to say, I say getting him to say because it took 12 exchanges and going from holding arms to holding ears. The boys had bruising on their ears and the police had a theory that that was due to forced oral sex, that they were held by the ears during that process, which may explain. So that's I mean, there's it's, it's hard. It's hard to prove after someone's been submerged in water for 18 hours if there was, in fact, oral sex performed you know they, they did, obviously they didn't swab for they swabbed, but they didn't find any evidence of semen or anything like that but that yeah. was the theory they were working on okay so what was your take on on that because to me that, that kind of shed some light into how the information came about in the interview where we had the police working on a theory that the boys were held by the ears to force oral sex And then when Gitchell asked Jesse about it, he says, well, you know, they must have held him. How did they hold him? And he says, by the arms. And then, you know, 12 exchanges later, he gets him to say they held him by the ears.
4: Yeah,
3: well, um, I'm trying to remember the exact wording. Did he ask, did they hold him by the ears or did Jesse finally volunteer that after 12 prompts?
1: So, it, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he says they must have held them to do that. So how did they hold them? and keep them to, and make them do that. And Jesse says, they held him there by the, by the arms. And he says, okay, did, did they hold him anywhere else? And then you hear Gitchell say, did they hold him up here? And he says, oh, up here, they had them. Uh, I think he says they had him in a headlock. Headlock. Yeah. That's you, what I was
3: just going to say. That yeah. Headlock.
1: And then he keeps saying, so you can't see the gesturing, but after, you know, on the, the, the last exchange here, Gitchell say, or did they have them like this up here? And then you hear Jesse say, yeah, they, they had him up, they were holding him up by the ears. So we don't know what that gesture was, but it went from arms to ears.
3: Yeah, well, you know, again, it's it's definitely uh, discouraging that they are providing so much information to him rather than drawing information from him. That's discouraging. it's it, from a law enforcement standpoint in an interview but at the same time i mean i i cannot i cannot say with absolute certainty that he hadn't prompted some of this information himself earlier mm-hmm. and then you know sidetracked and went off on tangents he just seems to be very um general and generic in his answers in the initial interview and then the specificity is brought out, sometimes by him, sometimes by them, more often by them, in further questioning, because he just draws a very, you know, it's like, you're looking for the Mona Lisa and you're getting crayon circles, and squares.
1: Right. Well, you know it, what I'm saying? Yeah. That's,
3: that's like his, his capability intellectually is at about that level. You're just not going to get a, a, a great 3D sculpture out of him because he doesn't have that ability, so they're you know, I'm sure there's a lot of frustration that you think you got the right kid that's part of this team of guys that did this horrific crime. And unfortunately, he's your key witness and only witness. And he's not a very potent character. Right. You know, as far as portraying information and, and telling a story. Yeah. I mean, some people are just, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm sure you've been at, at a party, you've been at a gathering where somebody's telling a story and they're just a. Horrible storyteller, and you're just wanting to step in and and help them tell the story better. Uh, And then there's other people that can can talk about buying shoes and can tell the story that is has everybody uh, you know with rapt attention listening. Jesse is the former, you know, where he he cannot tell a story, And, and whether he's making it up or recalling it, it's very difficult because he's just so functionally illiterate. Um, and, and inarticulate
1: right and to, to kind of answer your question you mentioned earlier you didn't know what his assessment was so to, to answer that he was given over the course of a couple of years of one right before uh the trial four different iq tests and, he, and his scores ranged from 67 to 73 and okay. the, and the doctor that assessed him said that he functioned um, is, is as far as reasoning on the level of a six- or seven-year-old child.
3: Yeah, that's that's not surprising at all. So trying to ask a six-year-old to paint a picture like that and recall things, and if he's at the mental ability of a six-year-old, then the trauma and the horror that a six-year-old would feel is what he's feeling at that time and at the time of this interview. So is it something that he, you know, is he capable of reading the newspapers is he capable of recalling what he sees in the media possibly and maybe that was horrific enough that you know he thought his friends did it and so it you know it compelled him to to tell this story but the question i have is is how did he come to the police attention attention how did we get to the point of him being interviewed do you have any idea what the investigative steps and what uh, evidence might have led to him being brought in and being questioned.
1: Yeah. So originally, two weeks before this, he had called the police uh, because he was with some friends near where the crime scene's at. And there was, they saw him and his friends saw a grown man chasing some little boys. And then the man came up to them and asked them if they wanted to come back to his camp in the woods and and have a drink with him. And so they called the police because they were afraid in his interview that he was afraid that this guy might be the killer. And the police ended up going and interviewing the guy. They later cleared him. So that kind of put him on the radar. And then also, there was another woman who, and it's, it's a long, convoluted story, but uh, she was, I'm using air quotes, helping the police try to get to the main suspect, whose name is Damian Eccles. Uh-huh. And she said, she told the police that she knew. This kid Jesse Miss Kelly very well. He babysits her kids. He knows, you know, she knows him very well, uh, and he knows Damien. So she used Jesse to connect her with Damien. So this interview on this day began with him coming in. As what he said in a later interview was, they told him he was coming in to talk about the guy that he saw that he had reported to the police weeks before. Then it became about Damien, and then by the end of the end of the interview he was confessing that he was actually involved in the murders himself.
3: Yeah. See, now that would be, what do I wish that was uh, recorded I and mean, we could be listening to that.
1: Right. Yeah. Now, me too.
3: It, Cause that would be telling. Cause you know, again, the, the fact that they're doing a follow on to try and draw information from what is the equivalent of a six year old. It's understanding that there would be leading questions. Because it's a completely different uh, type of interview when you're when you're interviewing a child or somebody who doesn't have the capability that an adult has. You know, he's 18 years old, going on seven. That's so that changes the whole, you know, the whole aspect of how things are handled. And again, I I, I I'm torn right down the middle on whether th- he's guilty or innocent on this. I can't, I can't find definitively in either direction because although there's misstatements and there are things that are factually in error, it's possible that I, I'm, I, I'm not trying to make excuses for him or for the investigators. I'm just throwing out what things I believe are plausible based on what I'm hearing and what I heard in those interviews. And one of the things that is plausible is if this is in the press for a month that, that they were sodomized and raped and if he was in fact there, but turned his back to throw up, ran away a couple times and came back, whatever the case may be, he's filling in the voids from what he didn't see with information he's reading or hearing. That's possible. Okay. It's also possible he only read those stories and that his friends, Damien and Jason or whatever their names are, just are a couple of really bad, bad eggs and and he's afraid of them and thought maybe they did it, or maybe they joked around that they did it, you know? And so mm-hmm. that he he extrapolated from there with the information in the press and ends up, you know, showing this tale to the, to the police.
1: Sure. And to give you a, a little more of the full picture um, leading up to this, so he, he went into the police station at 10 in the morning. This interview happened at 2.45 in the afternoon. In the middle there, he, again, they first start talking about something else. Uh, he was actually a minor. They called his dad. His dad gave him permission to talk to him. He, yeah, he
3: just what, about to turn eighteen, right?
1: Yeah, I think so. Yeah, he was seventeen, close to eighteen. Uh, I
3: think he said his birthday was July fourth.
1: Yeah. Yep. So he, um, they talked to him about the other issues. Then they started talking about Damien, and then, then he, you know, he denied knowing anything about the crime, and then they gave him a polygraph. And in the polygraph, when he got done with it, he came out and the detective that administered it told him that he failed the polygraph. And he, it's written in the report. He put, quote, he's lying his ass off. According to Jesse, they told him, we know that, you know, you did this because your brain told us you did this. Um, as it turns out, just as a, uh, an aside, but just so you kind of have an understanding, because I don't know how you feel about polygraphs. Uh, Warren Holmes, who's a world renowned polygraph expert examined the charts and determined that he showed no indication of deception during the, during that polygraph. Uh, the only thing where he showed deception was a question about whether he had used drugs before. And he said, no. Um, and when they, when they told Jesse that he failed the polygraph, he said, okay, I have done drugs. So that's kind of consistent with what Warren Holmes, but those are the things that, and there was a little more to it also, but that's what led up to when all, then he said after the polygraph, he did the interview that was unrecorded where he then confessed, to Detective Gitchell and then they turn the tape recorder on to capture the confession.
3: Yeah, that's, I mean, polygraphs are, are, there's a reason why they're not uh, admissible in court in most cases um, because they, they're ineffective generally with false positives, not the other way around uh, because it's, it's, it's it's a, it's a very rough uh, analysis of just emotional response to, Stimuli, the stimuli being questions, and that emotional response is also physiological, and so that physiological response can can relate to a whole host of things. Have you taken Tylenol or Advil recently? Are did you get enough sleep last night? Are you hydrated enough? There's, so there's a lot of factors that play into this, and it's why polygraph, polygraph is just the the interviewer. Giving the polygraph exam, his analysis is more important than what the machine tells you in reality.
1: Right. Yeah, and I feel this, I I don't put much weight into polygraphs at all. Yeah. For me, I was it was wondering how it affects the you know the reasoning behind when he decides to confess after they told him that he failed the polygraph, whether he did yeah. or not is kind of irrelevant.
3: Again, we're talking about the mentality of a six year old, so that's first grade material. And I'm trying to remember what I might have. I admitted to if my first-grade teacher accused me of something and said, you know, your brain told me you did this Do I go along with that? Do I cry and run away? I mean, right. I, I don't know, but uh, Yeah, it just you know, I when you look at it from this perspective hearing again from what you're saying that the, the Sexual assaults didn't take place uh, What about the cutting was he accurately describing any of the cutting cutting on the face and the cutting on the genitals?
1: Sort of. It, that, that's actually up, kind of up for debate. Um, at the time, it was believed that, yeah, there was – because their faces, one of their faces was – well, all of them had some cuts to their face. And one of the boys did have his genitals. It's disgusting to talk about, but it was degloved. The testicles and scrotum was removed, and the, the penis was skinned. Later, uh, Dr. Warner Spitz investigated, uh, reviewed the autopsy. And determined that that was all postmortem animal predation, and none of the cut, none of that actually happened at the scene. But that's still, the, you know, that's that's all medical opinion. Some people go either way. Yeah. Um, they did show him photographs, or at least one photograph of one of the boys on the autopsy table prior to the interview. We know that. But when we get to the, you know, the the genital cutting, that's another point I want to talk to you about. Did you? What did? Because you, you said, you know, he Jesse said that there was cutting to the face and cutting to the genitals. Now, I, I've got notes here on how we got there, you know, because my notes say, you know, that, that that Ridge told him, okay, somebody had a knife, and they cut the boys. Where'd they cut him? And he says, on the face. And then it's, well, they, they cut another boy, too. Where'd they cut him? They cut him somewhere else. And he says, uh, the bottom. Was he face yeah. up or face down? He was face down. Well, there's, sure, And then you hear Gitchell say, did they cut him right here, like in the groin area? Yeah, that's where they cut him. You know, yeah. again, did that information come from, because that's one of the things a lot of people will say that, well, he knew about that. I mean, it was in the press that they were sexually mutilated, but not to that, extent it didn't explain it. But, you know, that, that that he knew that, how can he know that? But when when I broke down my notes, his his back and forth there was not, it was just nothing but answering yes, 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 yes. yes.
3: Yeah, no, I picked up on that. And, and uh, yeah, when he said the bottom, it sounded like a six-year-old saying that. Mm-hmm. That's an expression that a, that a small child would use. They certainly wouldn't use penis, testicles, groin, genitals, any of the, the terms that are more common for if he's talking about that part of the body, but to just say the bottom.
1: See, I assume when he said bottom that he meant the buttocks.
3: Would yeah, say- that's, what, that's what would be more common, but for, for a lot of little kids, they refer to everything down there as the bottom. Mm-hmm. I can tell you a circumstance happened with my, uh, my next door neighbor's daughter when she was about, uh, probably only about five, telling a story about she got, she got cut on her bottom and they thought she got, she was running through the woods and got caught on a stick. And it was in the front that she got caught, but oh. they, were, they thought it was on the back. But I remember her thinking that's, that's weird that she's calling that the bottom, but
4: that's what she referred to all of it as.
1: Gotcha. Yeah. And then, you so, know, when I heard that exchange, it just that was one of the and it's interesting you brought that part up that because just, that was one very, of very,
3: very prompted.
1: Yeah. And that was one of the parts where I at the end of it when I kept going back and reviewing it. It's like none of that came from. I mean, he said something completely different. There was a cut to the face and there, they managed to change that all the way down to. And also, you know, me kind of reading his his responses, you see that uh, to me, I hear that. That's scared, like, no, and, you, and you, he's kind of questioning, is, is almost like everything he says has a question mark at the end, like, uh, the, uh, the bottom, were they face up or face down? He's face down, uh, and then, then, or was he face up? And did they cut him here? Was it the groin? Do you know what a penis is? And once it sounded to me like once he clued in, that's what they wanted. Then all of a sudden with confidence, he says, yeah, yeah it was the P, pe- that's where they cut him at. They cut him with the penis. I saw him cut him there and I saw some blood.
3: Yeah, I, it's, I'm telling you, it is, it's, textbook, if, if he was an adult, this would be a horrendous interview. But he's the mentality of a child, so I you can understand why they would have to do so much prompting. But again, that's only if he volunteered some of this stuff initially.
1: Right, and that's one thing I wanted to clear up, exactly what you just said. So yeah, because- if he
3: did not, if he just said, I was there, I saw him, and then they stopped and said, okay, let's record this. And then all of this was prompted. That's a whole different ballgame. If in fact though he said I was there they 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 had sex with those boys, they cut those boys and, and they put those boys in the water. If that's what he said and then they said, Let's do this interview, you know, and record it, whole different ball game. It's a whole different world. Right. So I don't know what he initially provided and they were trying to draw back out of him or did they draw it all out of him.
1: Right. And that's that's what I wanted to make clear. The leading questions are understandable if you're trying to get him to repeat something that he already said.
3: Yeah, to get more information from what he already said. But if if there was no initial statement that gave any detail at all about this crime or his potential involvement with these other two guys in the crime, then this seems like a textbook example of just leading questions and finding answers that you already know yourself you want to hear.
1: What did you make of, I'm curious in your take of when they asked him, number one, when they were asking him to describe the crime scene. Now, there, now he had some, some pretty big factual errors there. Um, but beyond that, uh, when they asked him, you wouldn't have a problem if we took a video camera and took you, took you there to show us where all this happened. What did you make of his response and demeanors there?
3: What was his actual response? It was very hard to
4: hear.
1: His his actual response was, uh, uh, he was real quiet and then he said not, he mumbled real quietly under his breath. Not that I know of, they had him repeat it. And he said, not that I know of, I wouldn't. And then he said, but I I haven't been there. I went there three days later and I haven't been there since.
3: Yeah. The recollection of, uh, you know, which side of the Creek were you on the Memphis, West Memphis, the Memphis side or the blue Creek or whatever Mm -hmm. town. Um, he did answer that once or twice, pretty specifically. They were on this side; I was on the other side, looking down the embankment at them.
1: Right, and, and
3: then that, that aspect seemed to never come back again in the storytelling.
1: Right. Well, and that was another point, uh, and I think I had pointed that out in our analysis was the point that he was on top. You know, when they're asking him, "So where were yeah. you at? This side, that side?" And he said, "Oh, I was on this side." And he said, "Okay, there's a there's a there's a steep embankment there. Were you up on the bank?" And he said, "Yeah, I was up there on that." For me it was like that was a, a description he should have been able to give where he was standing but they had to tell yeah. him and then him yep. yes that's where i was standing
3: exactly i know that's there was there was a ton of leading stuff and again I, the, the first of all a video would have been so much more helpful to see sure and see some of the non-verbals but again the non-verbals are not going to be very accurate because of the mental state of him if he's got the mentality of a six-year-old first of all i have to go back to that the woman you said that initiated this that uh first gave up Mm -hmm. jesse yeah uh the fact that she has jesse babysitting for her children
1: yeah well lots of people in the he was known to babysit a lot of kids in the children and then in the trailer park that he lived
3: with a mental capacity of a six-year-old
1: yeah yeah apparently they well you know they all said that he got along really good with the kids but that's understandable yeah
2: Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW, are prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. But
1: let's hit on real, real quick, Tim, because now that you, like I said, you've heard the interview. Some of the the areas that were some pretty glaring factual errors that you might not be aware of because I want to kind of know what your, what your take is on those. So one of them was the bindings of the boys. So okay. the boys were found bound, their own shoelaces had been removed from their shoes and then they were bound wrist to ankle, right wrist to right ankle, left wrist to left ankle so which my theory is this was about more about body concealment than restrainment because you could still move and if if they were bound that way. Um, and so Jesse's description after again Ridge told him that the boys were bound, Jesse describes just their hands being tied and I don't know if yeah. you ca- if you caught why, R-
3: yeah why weren't they able to run why couldn't they flee right their hands were tied well, they beat them pretty bad he said
1: right. And he never did so. And then he also describes the boys. Uh, one of the boys, Michael Moore, running after he was bound, but Michael Moore's wrists were six inches from his ankles. You know, bound behind his, his back like that.
3: So they were bent backwards. Legs were bent at the knees, and their hands were behind. Right. Tied there.
1: Okay. Yep, and and actually, specifically, Michael Moore, the one that he said ran is the least likely to have done so. because Now, he was, factually speaking, Michael Moore was found a little further away from the other two, about 25 feet, but uh, the other two victims, Stevie and, and Christopher, were bound each, a full-length shoelace on each side. Michael Moore, he was bound with one shoelace cut in half, so where uh, Stevie and, and Christopher had maybe two feet between wrist and ankle, Michael Moore had maybe six to eight inches between wrist to ankle. And he's the one that we he was saying was running after he was bound. And then and then later in the follow-up interview, you hear Gitchell trying to get him to describe the bindings and he tells them they were bound with a brown rope. And so obviously that's a factual error, but what what caught my attention even more so was the process of tying the boys up was a process. They had to take the laces out of six different shoes or five different shoes Before they tied them up in that manner, and so he just to put it frankly, he completely shit the bed on how the boys were tied up by what they were tied up with, and then I also caught Ridge not wanting to go into more detail, and that was a big, big red flag to me when he said, "What were they bound with? It was a rope. What did it look like? It was a brown rope." Where to me, if you're trying to get more information, you say, "Well, where did the rope come from? Where did we? Who brought it?" But instead, he immediately changed the subject. my my analysis was Ridge was savvy enough to know if I ask him where the rope came from, he'll tell me he'll make something up and make this problem worse. So he got away from it. I'm curious what you thought about it.
3: Yeah. That factually that again, uh, it's disconcerting if it's, if it's that far from reality, if he didn't see them disrobed and I can't remember the, the, there were several questions about when their clothes came off, when they were on and, uh,
1: well, he, he changed that three or four, two or three times, yeah. I think.
3: Yeah, he did. And so, again, I'm trying to look at this as objectively as possible. What does a six-year-old describe a shoelace as? A brown rope? I don't know. Were they brown shoelaces or white sneaker laces? Uh, again, big difference visually because kids tend to generalize in their answers so a brown rope could be a shoelace if they were boot laces or something like that. If they if they were white sneaker laces, whole different ball game.
1: Well, that they were Again, two two of the shoes had black laces from sneakers, and the other one had white laces from sneakers.
3: Yeah, so brown doesn't even come to play visually in that. So it uh, seems like that was uh, leading questioning that led to a dead end, and that's why the questioning ended there.
1: Right, and that was one of the biggest issues I had on a factual basis. Were number one, Ridge had to tell him there was bindings. Number two, he'd only described their hands being bound, and number three, he said they were able to run with the bindings on. And then number four, he says they were bound with a black ro- or brown rope rather than shoelaces, and he never describes the process of taking the shoelaces out of the shoes. Yeah, it's just I find it hard. Okay. You know, it's it's one of those things where. Yeah, you know, I'm always looking like you had said earlier, where are they trying to minimize their involvement in that particular detail? The material they were bound with doesn't change his involvement at all. He's just wrong about it.
3: And it, some of this may be he's trying to please the interviewers. You right. Know, a lot of it is, again, you're talking about a six-year-old mentally trying to please the authorities that are sitting across from him.
1: Yeah, well, and, and that's how I took the, the whole...
3: Is the whole, yeah, that's the question. At what amount of it is the whole thing about trying to please the authorities?
1: Right, because that was my take on you know what. In every exchange, and when we broke it down and looked at every bullet point, okay, here's a a point of evidence that he's supposedly giving them, and then we would isolate that and look like where did the information come from? Is he providing it? Is it just is he just agreeing with them? Does, and, and the other thing is, does he ever disagree with them? And, and I, I don't think he ever does through the entire interview, maybe once he, or twice.
3: He never, yeah, he never corrects them that I'm aware of. He, he never says, no, 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 it was, it, it's always them steering him down a path. Right. You yeah. know, literally, even with the path where he talks about what's it like and is there a path across there? Yeah, a path.
1: Exactly. Yep, that was a, that was one of the exact points that, that I pointed out again, that he should, you know, you'd think he'd at least be able to kind of vaguely describe the crime scene. And then, but they have to tell him there's a path. He repeats there's a path. He still gets it wrong because he says that the path leads out to the road, which it doesn't. It leads back to the pipe bridge, which he doesn't seem to even know is there. He doesn't, you know, he knows they laid their bikes down, but doesn't know where they laid their bikes down. Well, he doesn't know where they laid them down. How does he know they have bikes? There's, you know, there's lots of those issues. And one of the, and we're we're getting kind of long, uh, and I don't want to keep it too long. But one of the big issues that I that I found was he's he's admitted that he was there and participated, and the boys were killed. When asked how they were killed, he says that he saw them kill Chris Byers first by saying they held a hand, strangled him with his hands, and then changes it to they held a stick over his throat and strangled him with a stick. The huge issue there is none of the boys showed any signs of strangulation. None of them showed any damage to their throat, their hyoid bone, none of that. The cause of death was drowning. And the cause of death for the particular boy that he said he witnessed by strangling, he was the one where the original medical examiner said that he bled to death due to the castration. Dr. Spitz's uh, opinion of that is that that's not accurate, that he also just simply drowned. But the so manner it, of how they died is completely wrong.
3: Yeah. How did Dr. Spitz examine did he examine the body or the results of the
1: autopsy? No, no, no. This was this was fifteen years later, so that, and that's why I say it's yeah. still up for contention because he's examining the reports and the photos.
3: Oh, all right. Uh, the, yeah, either the initial autopsy is totally worthless, or or uh, the second one is because right. they're in such great conflict. And and see, this is why I think this is very much a gray area. It's why I can't say this is all fabricated and it's a lie and it was a, a forced confession. Because just like these two alleged experts, and one of them is world renowned, the other one isn't, but they're both experts. They're both professionals in this field Mm -hmm. and have such divergent opinions from two grown adult educated individuals, experienced individuals, that you can see that there's no, there's no, there's no black and white there. There's a lot of gray. If you can interpret the same photograph to say oh no this was done by animals after the fact whereas the guy that actually looked at it first said oh no this was a, a gloving with a knife that's a wow that's a huge difference there physically so right. the fact that we can see that kind of divergence from reality because only one reality can exist on that actual act it's understandable how a 17 a year old boy with a, with a, a brain that, that stopped growing 10 years prior or 11 years prior could, you know, be, be off on many facts and still have been there. Because again, he's, he's throwing up based on his response to this in his own, in his words. I'm not saying this is true. So it's kind of understandable that as a witness to these crimes, excuse me, even though he's allegedly was there as a witness to them, he may not have paid attention to much of it at all.
1: Was there any other points, Tim, that before we kind of wrap here that you wanted to hit on?
3: I, you know, I just want to say that it's, I can understand, I know there's a lot of emotion on both sides of this. They're guilty or they're innocent. And I understand the emotion for both camps. And I'm not in either camp. I just, I can't blame the police objectively looking at it. I'm like, wow, that's sloppy. That's, you know, terrible interview technique, but I've never interviewed a, a six year old for a murder. So that's a, that's a strange road to have to go down, not knowing what the mental state of the person sitting across the table from you. Cause I imagine at that point, they didn't have a an evaluation yet. So they're just going on a 17 year old kids going to turn 18 in three weeks. Uh, should be able to give us a reasonable story and, and retell these events. If, if what he just told us is true, and then you're you're digging deeper and deeper and deeper and going slower and slower and slower, and and you're you're just digging a hole, you're not getting any further down the road. So I, I can understand why the leading questions and everything else you're trying. You know, we got to get through this story. We got to get to the end of this. We got to get to the point where these kids get killed. Is he going to be a witness for the state or isn't he? So I you know I, I completely understand both sides, and I don't mean to be s- straddling the fence. I just the information I have, having listened to it, uh it bothers me in both directions. Uh I still I, I feel that there could be guilt and I feel that there could be innocence. I just don't know which one weighs heavier. But clearly uh a hundred percent beyond a reasonable doubt, not there for me.
1: Alright, well let me first apologize to all of you for the sound quality, and hopefully we were able to clean that up for you a little bit, but as you guys know from Friday follow-ups episode, I had to go to jury duty this week, that's when we were supposed to record this interview, we had to reschedule, and unfortunately the only time when we could both talk was when Tim was on his way to Nashville to CrimeCon, so he's in his car, and like I said, we are do our best to clean that up, but at this point when recording this, I don't know how that's going to turn out, so hopefully the audio quality wasn't too bad, but that's why. Now, moving on to the content of what Tim said, I think that we are going to have a very interesting discussion in the Friday follow-up. I'll be honest with you, I was very surprised at Tim's take on a lot of this. To me, in my opinion, the actions of the detectives in that interview were inexcusable. And Tim, as you heard, didn't quite have that opinion. He said, you know, it depends on, it was sloppy interview techniques, but one thing that maybe we haven't considered is that jesse maybe had already provided some of that information in the pre-interview so with that i don't want to comment any more on this i want you guys to be able to absorb that and listen there have been several other experts that have commented on this interview but tim again being completely unbiased doesn't know the case that's his opinion so let's talk about it later this week in the friday follow-up And Justice is a production of NBI Studios. Michael Bussing is your executive producer, and Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInAsong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. And Shane Yoder of PutThemInAsong.com designed and created our Season 5 logo. A special thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website. And also a big thank you to our transcription team, Sarah Mueller, Anna Dindorf, Britta Bliss, and Stephanie McConnell. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $1 a month, We also have reward levels on the Patreon page that include access to the -the behind-the-scenes videos of the taping of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts, Truth and Justice hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. But the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. And for all of you tweeters, you can follow along on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on the case that phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.